All right, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians 5. Megan, thank you very much for playing again. 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll begin reading this morning at verse 12. Second Corinthians 5, we'll begin reading in verse number 12. And this morning, as you can see by your outlines of those of you at home, you can see it on the screen. The title of my sermon is, That's Crazy. That's Crazy. Have you ever wondered if you're crazy? Man, I got a better response to that than I have in a while, right? I got several amens. <laughs> I'm sure other people have wondered at some point if you're crazy, <laughs> if you've never wondered it about yourself. I've wondered it a few times since I've been saved, since I've been saved. Am I crazy? Is, is this really the way that God intended for life to be this way? I want to show you that's not completely a foreign question, a foreign thought. You can see it here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. Forgive me, I am going to pause just in between these verses to help you understand what the context is and what Paul's trying to get across. In the chapter before this, and we'll look at the verses now now. Paul explained all the trouble he went through while trying to minister to these Corinthians the gospel. And he's saying, guys, listen, I'm not telling you about all this just to brag, to show you how tough I am. I'm trying to tell you how much we've gone through because I want you to know how much you mean to us. And that way, if somebody else comes along and starts trying to make a case for how right they are, and how wrong we are, you can tell them, but look at how much Paul cares about us. Despite all the troubles and trials he went through, he pressed on and gave us the truth. Now, verse 13, some of the Corinthians were not on board with this. He says, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Now, notice the language here. Whether we be beside ourselves that maybe is the delicate way of saying we're crazy some of the Corinthians looked at what Paul was going through and said Paul if you would simply stop preaching the gospel all of your problems would go away for you to continue on preaching the gospel you're bringing this trouble on yourself Paul, you must be mad. Wasn't it Festus in Acts chapter 26 that said specifically, Paul, thou art mad. He said, you're crazy to go through all of this. So Paul is acknowledging that some people think he's crazy. He said, okay, let's say that I am crazy. If that's the way you want to see it, well, I'm crazy because I'm trying to do what I think God wants me to do. So if you think I'm crazy, I'm not helping you at all, but you have to at least acknowledge that I'm doing this for God. I'm not doing this for any financial gain. 
I'm not trying to win a popularity contest. I'm just doing it for God. And then he says at the end of the verse, whether we be sober, which is another way to say we're in our right minds. Maybe I am thinking clearly. And if so, then what I'm doing is not just to please God, but also to help you. If I am in my right mind, then I and my fellow laborers in the gospel, we are examples unto you. You can follow us as we follow Christ. So verse 14, Paul launches into an explanation. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge. And I love how he puts that in there. Notice that Christianity, some say it's an illogical religion. They say that we simply march on by blind faith, doing and believing whatever the preacher tells us to do. That's not the case. Paul says we thus judge. We've thought this through. We're taking calculated steps in our lives. He says, let me tell you how I've reached this conclusion, why I preach the gospel the way that I do. Watch what he says. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He said, you see how I'm putting this together? If Jesus died for all, that must mean everybody had a problem. That means everybody was dead. He died for all. He didn't die for just some. He died for all. That means everybody has the same problem, spiritual deadness. Verse 15, he continues his logical reasoning. And that he died for all, that they which live, so that means all were dead, but some got rescued. All were dead, but some got born again. So now he's continued on. Jesus died for all because all were sinners and dead in trespasses and sin, but then some get saved, they're born again, now they're alive, what do they do? That he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He says, now doesn't this make sense? Jesus died for all, all had a problem. Some of those people, they accept what Jesus did, they get born again. What do they do? Now they live for the one that gave them life. He said, this is pretty simple math. Nothing real, nothing real difficult or deep to that. Verse 15, uh, 16, Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I don't know if you're the kind of person that underlines things in your Bible, but I would suggest that you underline these two words, all things. Do you see that? All things. And maybe even in verse 14, if you want to make note of it, Christ died for all. All were dead. I want you to see the inclusiveness of Paul's thinking. In verse 17, all things are become new. Look at verse 18. And all things, do you see it again? All things are of God. So this brand new life, this brand new approach to life that I have in Christ, it is of God. Paul didn't make it up. Some other pastor didn't make it up. This whole thing was put together by God. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Quick question. 
It says he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Who is us? Us. Let's think about this. Verse? Verse 17. Spot on. I, I think I heard it up here as well. Verse 17. Anybody that is a new creature in Christ, you have been given this ministry of reconciliation. This is not an apostolic ministry, as they say. This is not something limited to an elite few in the body of Christ. Anybody who's a new creature, you are part of verse 18. You have been called into the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, Paul expands on this. To wit, that God was in Christ. So God reconciled the world to himself by Jesus Christ. Paul goes a step further and explains that a little bit. What do you mean by that, Paul? God was in Christ. When Jesus came to the world, that was God manifest in the flesh. When God wanted to bring sinners to himself, he didn't say, sinner, lift yourself up to where I'm at so that we can get along. God condescended. God humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and said, you'll never reach where I'm at, but I can reach where you're at. I am high and holy and lifted up and therefore the only way that you and I are ever going to get along is if I come down to where you're at and lift you out of the pit that you have dug for yourself. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them. So he did not charge you with your sins. Rather he took the bill. He said, rather than you pay for your sins, I will pay for your sins in your place. The wages of sin is death. Jesus took that bill that you ran up with your sin and made the payment. Not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. When he says word, what do you think he's talking about there? Specifically, he's talking about the gospel. In the ministry that we have, we are supposed, ministry is just helping people. How specifically do we as Christians help people? We can help them in a humanitarian way. There's nothing wrong with that. To give them a blanket, to give them a warm meal, a cup of cold water, all of those things are, are fine. They're godly, they're biblical, those are acceptable ways of helping. But they only address a, a limited number of needs in a person's life you understand that the ultimate help you can give somebody is to explain to them how to be made whole with God again how to establish that true relationship where they can be accepted in the beloved I don't think there's any greater gift that you can pass on to the next person than to tell them how much God loves them that is overwhelmingly life-changing he says that's the word that you have been committed or been given that's been given to you it's been committed to you you need to tell people why Christ died and how it can change them verse 20 now then we are ambassadors for Christ we represent him as though God did beseech you by us the word beseech means to beg or to ask earnestly. God beseeching sinners. How? What is his vessel? What method does he use? He uses you. He uses me. 
reaching out to the world through the people he's already saved. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. We're begging you, please come to God. But if you want to come, you can only get there through Christ. That's the only way. You can't make up your own path back to God. Verse 21, he expands a little here on the word, the gospel that we preach. For he hath made him to be sin for us. That is God the Father made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him a wonderful encapsulating verse of what the gospel can do the power that it brings so with that in mind I'd like to speak further on this topic that's crazy that's crazy and if we're going to deal with this crazy topic we need God to help us so please bow your heads with me and let's pray just for a moment Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning to open up the word and preach. I pray that you would touch hearts. I pray that you would be our unseen visitor. I pray that, God, you would stir us to do something with this word and with this ministry that you've given us. Thank you for making it possible. And, Lord, if we're crazy, then we're, we're crazy because this is, this is what you want us to do. If the world thinks this of us, God, help us to put that aside and just keep doing what you'd have us do. Help me to do the same in preaching today, Lord. Regardless of what they think, I've got to tell them what you put on my heart. Help me to say it now with boldness. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the earmarks of biblical Christianity, and it's been like this for 2,000 years, one of its earmarks is its outgoing, forthright nature. I, I want to use a, a big word I stumbled across in English. I don't know if I've ever used it in a, in a proper conversation, so let me impress you with my dictionary skills. The, the, the biblical Christianity is communicative. Ah, I got it on the first try. <laughs> communicative. What do I mean by that? The word communicative means willing eager and able to talk and impart information now you probably know a lot of people who are communicative right <laughs> like man I, I have a tonny that meets that meets that description perfectly biblical Christians if you start in the book of Acts and read any church history book you will find biblical Christianity is willing eager able to talk and impart information biblical christianity does not stay silent jesus sent his disciples into all the world right to do what to preach he sent them into all the world to say something to teach other people how to be disciples and as you look throughout history what you'll also find something consistently true it's communicative i like my big word but it, it also receives a lot of persecution. It's never popular. It's never popular. And down through history, to various extents and various levels, the flames of persecution, strangely enough, instead of quenching this outgoing nature of biblical Christianity, seems to increase its fervency. The more the world hates us for it and persecutes us for it, the louder we speak. It's one of the earmarks 
of biblical Christianity. I'll give you an example. You tell me how crazy this sounds. A young lady, I believe she was in her younger 20s, if memory serves, and you've heard me tell her story before, but she's one of my heroes, so I don't mind repeating it. A young lady named Sisley Orms. She lived in the the mid-1500s. She was, as most people in those days, she grew up Catholic, but then in her young 20s converted to biblical Christianity. She became born again, and she started to tell all of her friends and neighbors that they also needed to be born again. The church leaders, looking at her as a silly, young, immature girl, they thought to have mercy on her. They went to Miss Orms and said, "Uh, listen, we, we understand that you're just excited. Do us a favor. Instead of giving you the stake, right? They, because they burned heretics in these days. Instead of sending you to your death, we'll cut you a deal. All you need to do is go to church. We'll let you go to the church of your choice, but stop telling others about Jesus. Just stay quiet. Miss Orm said, where's the stake? And it, was, and it was only a couple days later, they marched her up the hill, tied her to the stake, and she happily died for Christ. Now think about this, if I can ask you to do this for a moment, and I normally wouldn't, think about this with just your human mind, the natural man, how would you look at that? The natural man looks at that and says, Miss Orms, why didn't you just take the deal? You could live out a a long and seemingly happy life. All you have to do, and you can even go to church and worship God and praise the Lord and sing and read your Bible. All of that would have been there. All you'd have to do is leave out one thing. Don't tell others about Jesus. Don't you have to be a little crazy to not take that deal? That's crazy. That's crazy. Many of you know my favorite missionary is a man named John Patton missionary to the South Sea Islands of the New Hebrides. He went there in the mid-1800s. Let me briefly tell you what he got himself into. You tell me if this sounds crazy. In 1839, John Williams and James Harris, two missionaries, arrived on the island of Eromanga. This is an island right around the corner from where Patton would live out most of his life. They arrived in Eromanga. They got off the boat after five months of a boat ride. They got off the boat, put their feet on the sandy beach. The heathen ran out of the jungle to greet them. It wasn't five minutes. They were clubbed to death. A little later, the heathen boiled them and ate them. Upon hearing this news, the missionary society back in the UK said, they need more missionaries. That's crazy. Man, you just got eaten. You know what natural wisdom tells you to do? Run, sucker, run, right? Why do you want to get into that? The natural man looks at that and says, I know how to handle this. Just don't go there. Instead, the missionary society sent others. They tried to train more local people, Samoan people. But even these People used to the climate went to Eramanga, went to Aniwa, went to Tana. And when they got to these islands, the malaria, because, you know, depending on where you're at, the strain of malaria changes. It's not the same all over the world. 
and the Samoans couldn't handle the life there. It was too brutal. These are people that are somewhat native to the area. Other missionaries went and tried to stay, but the natives would literally chase them from one island to the next. These missionaries would have to run for their lives and many of them get in a boat and just pray that God would push the boat to the next island in a proper way. John Patton, he had a very, can I say successful, a thriving ministry back in Scotland where he was from in Glasgow. He had a growing church, John Patton, his missionary society that he was a part of, they required that he goes out four hours a day to preach the gospel. Patton said, for the gospel, that's not nearly enough. So he doubled it. He went out eight hours a day, ministering to people door to door, meeting them in the markets, telling people about Christ. And he talked to everybody high and low of society. It didn't matter. And his church was thriving and growing and people knew Patton was the real deal. Patton could not get off of his heart that tug of the Holy Spirit to say the people at the ends of the earth need to hear the gospel. Patton was hearing the stories of these cannibals that were threatening the missionaries. And he told his church, I believe that God is calling me to go minister to them. And his entire church almost unanimously said, why? Why leave the comforts of your home? Why leave a thriving church why there are lost people here in Glasgow why not minister to us one older gentleman in Patton's church he had this to say <laughs> repeatedly mind you this man this older man would come to him and say the cannibals you're going to be eaten by the cannibals and then would walk off you can't deny that the man had a point, though. I mean, that you have to at least consider the cannibals. <laughs> Eventually, John Patton replied to this man by saying this. His name was Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> and in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Again, if I can ask you to think of this just with your natural reasoning human reasoning really you, you are excited about going to minister to them with the very real possibility that you will be eaten by them you're looking forward to, to this type of life that's crazy that's crazy Patton boarded the boat with his wife almost six months later they arrived on the islands about another seven or eight months passed and Mary, John's wife, gave birth to their first son, Peter Robert Robson Patton. That was on February the 12th. On March the 3rd, so what is that, three weeks later? Mary died. She couldn't take the climate, the 
the weather, the malaria, everything that was on the island. She passed away only three weeks into her sojourn on that island. And then on March the 20th, so we have, what, another 17 days, two and a half weeks later, the baby boy died. And there's John Patton burying both his beloved wife and his newborn son. And instead of packing up and going home, Patton decided to stay on that island and say, God, I'm here so that these heathen can know you. And if it costs me my wife and if it costs me my son, you're worth it. That's crazy. As a man, right? As a man, take, take the Bible away from me. Take the Holy Spirit out of me. Leave me to me. Let me think about it. You know what I think about this? That's crazy. Why make this massive sacrifice? When I look at my life without the preaching of the gospel in it, it would be a lot simpler. The criticism, the hatred, the negativity that I receive just for trying to tell other people about the gospel. My life could be much better without that. Now that's me speaking as a natural man. You know, me as a natural man, if I were to tell you my honest opinion, I think we should leave everybody to themselves. Why talk about religion? It only causes problems. We just argue about it. It's much better to just stay quiet. Just leave you to you. You do you, I'll do me. Let's just all get along. Let's just ignore those kind of differences. Let's not even talk about it unless you want to have a private conversation with somebody that will tell you what you want to hear. Let's just stay away from it. That's me talking as me. No Bible, no Holy Spirit. When I look at this as a natural man, I go, that's crazy. Why would I try to interject my opinion of religion into your life and say, listen, you need to renovate your entire life to match what I'm telling you. That's crazy. That's crazy. When the Apostle Paul felt the Lord calling him to Jerusalem, the Christians then tried to warn him, said, Paul, you're going to go, you're going to find trouble. And Paul said this, I know one thing about this. Bonds and afflictions abide me. Everywhere I go, I'm going to have trouble. Here's his response to this. Just listen. Acts 20, verse 24. As a matter of fact, it's on your paper, on your outline. But none of these things move me. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said, everywhere I go, I'm going to be persecuted. I might even get arrested. I could even lose my life, but that's fine. Look at verse 24. You have it on the paper. He says, can I paraphrase this? I can't be happy unless I'm preaching the gospel. Do you see that in verse 24, or is that just me? I, I believe that's what Paul's, in a nutshell, that's what he's saying. I want to finish my course with joy. I look at that as the natural man and say, that's crazy. Paul, you are stepping into problems. If you would just shut up, 
Stop telling people that Christ is the Messiah, that the Judea religion is wrong. Just, just leave it be, man. But he wouldn't. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let me show you what has led up to the portion of Scripture we started with. 2 Corinthians 4 in your Bibles in verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry... Do you remember what we read earlier? We have the ministry of reconciliation, right? Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we have received, uh, I'm sorry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. We're not quitting. God's given us a job to do. We're not gonna give up on it, even though it's been tough. How tough? Come on down to verse number seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Do, do any of you, would any of you read that and go, I want that life. Nobody wants that life, right? Because we read that as natural men. And I don't blame you. I, I read it the same way. I go, that's not any kind of life I want to have. Verse 10, always, always, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Why are you going through this, Paul? So that other people can see Jesus. Now see, the natural man doesn't understand that, but the spiritual man, the Holy Spirit, the new creature inside of me, looks at that and says, oh, okay, that makes sense. If other people are going to see Jesus, then I'm, I'm going to have to, the servant is not above his master. I might have to go through some things too. Verse 11, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Do you see, if we're sober, it's for your cause. If we have thought this through and we're in our right mind, then all the trouble we're going through is worth it because you're getting help because you get to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ and there's nothing greater that you can learn about. Verse 13, <laughs> watch this. We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I what? I lived it out quietly and let you decide whether or not you want to follow it. No, that's not Christianity. Biblical Christianity is communicative. It likes to talk. So he says, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Paul, why can't you be quiet? Because I genuinely believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again, and that transforms not only your life, but your eternity. He said, I believe that, and I can't stay quiet. If you come down a little, well, we'll talk more about it in a moment, but I, I want to ask you this. Why, Paul, when you read these verses, you've got to ask yourself, why would you want to go through all this? Why not just stop preaching the gospel? So the natural man looks at it and thinks, this just can't be worth it. I must be doing something wrong. A young man went to the doctor once and he said, Doc, Doc, 
every time I do this, oh, it hurts. And the doc said, well, don't do that. <laughs> That's great advice, isn't it? <laughs> That's when the doctor sends you out to the receptionist and you pay the bill. <laughs> right? I mean, if you want the pain to stop, just don't do that. Doesn't that make sense? It hurts when I do this. Well, then don't do it. That's how the natural man thinks. If it's causing me problems, why am I doing it? Why continue to do it? If preaching the gospel gets people angry at me, if preaching the gospel causes divisions, and it does, even though that's not our intention, why do we keep doing it? Verse 18 Paul looked at things differently. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Do you see that Paul had a different view of life than the worldly view? The world looks at what we're doing, this communicative, this preaching of the gospel. Why won't you guys just be quiet? Paul said, I'm not looking at temporary things. I'm not looking at things that can be seen. I'm looking at things that cannot be seen. I'm looking at the soul. I'm looking at Jesus. I'm looking at eternity. I'm looking into heaven. I'm looking at those things. Paul, after he got saved, could not look at life the same way. Just take your Bible, look at chapter 5. You'll see it in verse 16. Very interesting verse, I think. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Paul, what do you mean by after the flesh? We don't look at humanity using our own natural wisdom and reasoning. You've heard me say it many times already this morning, right? If I were to just speak from my own opinion as a man, this is the conclusion I'd come to. Now, if I look at it through the eyes of the Bible, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit and what He's revealed to us in Scripture, I see it very differently. We don't look at humanity after the flesh how do we look at it after the spirit we look at them and, and we reason that if Christ died for all that means all are dead and that means all of them need to hear how to have life that's how we reason it we know no man after the flesh watch this yea verse 16 though we have known Christ after the flesh there was a time in Paul's life that he had a very different view of Jesus. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? There was a time in Paul's life, we knew him as Saul at that time, where he hated this man, Christ. He hated the name Jesus. He was not trying to make people Christians. He was trying to make away with Christianity. <laughs> he was killing them, persecuting them, uh, hauling them off to prison. No doubt, Paul was an educated man. He was in the know he heard about what Jesus did in going to the cross. And when somebody would tell him as he would put those Christians to death, he would say, listen, just turn your back on Christ. And one after another, they would say, never. He died for my sins. He loves me. I'll never turn my back on him. And Paul, I'm sure, was thinking, Jesus is a deceiver. Why? Listen, he couldn't even save himself from the cross. How can he be the Messiah if he didn't conquer the enemy? That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. And Paul, through his natural wisdom, looked at Jesus and was angry at him. 
was confused by him. Jesus was a stumbling block to Paul. He said, this man makes no sense. One day Stephen stands up to preach and he preaches a wonderfully powerful message. At the end of it, the Jewish leaders take the stones and they're killing Stephen and the Bible says Saul was there holding the coats watching this man die. You know what Saul was thinking at the time? Stephen, you're crazy. You, you might have made a few good points, but you're crazy. If you would just shut up about this Jesus guy, you could keep your life. But Saul stood there and watched, thinking to himself, why are these Christians so hard-headed? Why won't they just be quiet? Have you read the beginning of the book of Acts? You, you know what the problem was? It's not that the Christians created a massive soup kitchen and were handing out free food. They did, didn't they? Christians did that. They fed thousands of people every day. You know what else they were doing? Preaching the gospel. So you know what the Sanhedrin did? They called the apostles in and they, they didn't say stop feeding the hungry. No problem with the humanitarian help. Feed them, that way we don't have to. You know what they said? Stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop it. You're filling this town with your doctrine. Stop it. Stop it or die. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow that to go unchecked. Paul looked at the life of Jesus, the life of Stephen, and saw it as a complete waste, angry at it. But then one day, Paul gets saved. He meets the resurrected Jesus, and as soon as he does, his entire way of viewing Jesus changes. Verse 16 again, We have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Once the Holy Spirit had worked on Paul's heart and he met with the Lord, all of a sudden, everything about Jesus changed. He said, man, this person that I used to hate when in, with an intense hatred, now the same is true, but on the other side, I love him with a fervent love. I thought what he did was utterly useless. Now I see that there is no greater benefit to mankind than what Jesus did. I used to think that standing and preaching like Stephen did is a complete waste of your breath. And now I see there's no greater use for your breath than to utter the name of Christ to a sinner that needs to hear it. He said, we don't know him anymore after the flesh. We're not looking at Jesus and what he's commanded us to do with natural wisdom. We're not trying to balance this out and say, let's make it acceptable to the world. That's not our goal. We look at it through the eyes of Christ and say, how do you want me to communicate to the people? You see, now old things are passed away. My old way of reasoning, gone. All things have become new. I look at life, I look at the responsibilities I have as a Christian, and I look at them not as burdens. The commandments of the Lord are not grievous, but rather it's a privilege. To do what? To go through the persecution, to, through the mocking, through the people that are upset that I said something. All of a sudden, I don't mind that because I believe Christ wants me to do it. I believe it will help those people. Uh, take your Bible, come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse number 21. 
1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, Paul says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Is preaching the gospel foolish? Well, yes and no. Not to us. Not to us. You know how the world considers it? They look at that and think, you're crazy. You're crazy. And God said, now, the world has its own wisdom, its own way of thinking. The world says, this is useless. You're just causing trouble. You're causing division. This doesn't work. Just be friends with people. Love them into the kingdom. The world has a plan, and God says, I, I, I have a plan. Let's preach to them. Now, guys, please, let's get the picture correct in your head. This is not you standing on a soapbox on, the, on, the, on a street corner yelling at people all the day. You understand, that's, there's a time and a place for such things, but when I say preach the gospel, there's so many different ways you can communicate to somebody how to be saved. We'll talk more about where you can do that in a moment. But I want you to see is right now the world, they look at preaching the gospel as foolishness. And that is the very thing that pleases God to use. God's happy with that. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4. And verse number 10. The Corinthians were looking at Paul as a bit of a fool because he wouldn't shut up. In verse number 10, he says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. Paul's using sarcasm. He says, You guys think you have it all figured out. You've made an agreement with the world. He said, World, we will change Christianity so that it's more acceptable to you so that you will come and visit our church. Paul, on the other hand, would go to a new town, and you know what he would do when he went to a new place? He'd go into the synagogue, he'd stand up with the Bible and say, Jesus is the Messiah, you need to repent, you need to come to Christ. And they'd say, Paul, you're so abrasive, you're so aggressive, you're so confrontational, you're so communicative. I'm sure they knew that word back then. <laughs> they considered Paul as a fool, and they considered themselves to have it figured out. We know how to reach people as if Paul didn't. We are fools for Christ's sake. That's how the church in Corinth, some of them, some of them, that's how they viewed Paul. Do you want to know how we can see that the world has crept into the church in these last days? Is that the greatest critics of preaching the gospel are not the lost, but professing Christians. They are the ones that will continually criticize the efforts that we make, and we, anybody that preaches the gospel, to say, listen, that's not how you do it. Just stay quiet. We're about to start our missions conference, so if you wouldn't mind me slipping one thought about missions into this, why, folks, why would we put thousands of hard-earned rands and dollars into one message trying to take it to people that don't want to hear it. 
Why would we invest our time, our money, our prayers, an entire month of our year to preaching about it? Why? When we have enough problems in South Africa, amen? Don't we need the money here? You can say amen to that, that's fine. Don't we need the help here? Don't we need preachers here? Why send them to countries where it's illegal? Why do that? Why take a brilliant young man and his beautiful wife and rip them away from their families and send them to a place where they're not allowed to talk about these things? Why are we doing that? We must be crazy. Or are we? Maybe there's a very good reason. Now, as the natural man, you may look at that and think, Pastor, I agree with you. You're crazy. Let me attempt for just a few minutes more to make a biblical and spiritual case for why we so, to use the term aggressively, take the gospel to any person we can. Here's where your outline will come to help. Number one, point number one, Christ's love. I'm gonna give you three reasons why we're not crazy. I hope this makes a very logical, valid case for you. We're not crazy. Why do we do it? Number one, because of Christ's great love. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, you can see it there. We read it already, but it won't hurt you to see the words. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. How do I, in just a few brief minutes, fully explain the love of Christ to you? Paul said in Ephesians 3, it passes all knowledge. So I can tell you already, I will not be able to achieve that goal. Paul, in that same chapter, said that we are to know the length, the height, the breadth, and the depth of the love of Christ. But how can we know something that is so high, this mountainous love of His, it's too high to climb and fully grasp. It's too wide to wrap our minds around it. It's too deep to ever get to the bottom of it. And it's too long, we'll never get to the end of it. That's why Paul says in the next verse, the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. But boy, it sure is a joy to meditate on how much that love means to us. How do we properly talk about it? I'm going to present two aspects of love. Let me see if this makes sense for you. We can think of love as from coming from one side from the giver the giver of love and then we can also look at it from the other aspect the receiver of love let me see if I can break it down a little further when we look at, at love we want to recognize how great it is we look at what it cost the giver of that love to manifest it to the other person what do you, what do you mean by that pastor the more you love someone, the greater the lengths to which you'll go to care for that person. The greater the obstacles you'll overcome to care for that person. The greater the sacrifice. The greater the love, the greater the sacrifice. How does that apply to, to the Lord Jesus? Well, we look at the great lengths that he went to. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He in the form of God. He, he is the eternal God. Yet he leaves behind the palaces of heaven. He's born in a manger in obscurity. 
He lived in poverty his entire life. He suffered the rejection of mankind. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He had his beard ripped out. He had his clothes ripped off. He had a crown of thorns slammed onto his head. He endured the pain of the cross. He was buried in a borrowed grave and literally went through hell for us. I mean not to just go quickly through the list. But if you could in your own heart and in your own mind just think for a moment at how much he went through to the lengths that he went to to show you how much you mean to him. He did all of that just for you. Look at what he gave up. Look at what he had to go through just so that he could wrap his arms around you and whisper into the ear of your heart and say, sinner, I love you. You're something special to me. When I was a young man, I played basketball for my high school team. My dad, he was a single parent. My mom left when I was quite young. And at the time, I didn't appreciate this completely, but basketball practice, we had to go before school. We had practice in the middle of school, and we had practice after school. We had three practices a day. I was in really good shape. Man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Don't laugh. That wasn't a joke. <laughs> I was thinking out loud. My dad, he had to get up extra early to drive me all the way to the high school, which was a 15-minute drive, and that was the complete opposite direction from where he worked. He worked another 45, a 45-minute drive from home. So now it's an extra Right, there's 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. That's an extra half hour. And then at the end of the day, he has to come pick me up, so that's another hour. You know, at the time, all I could think was, big deal. He's my dad. He's supposed to. Now that I've been a dad, and I've gotten up early and stayed up late and gone through a few jumped over a few extra obstacles just to try to be there for my children. I know a little bit more of how it feels to try to show that young person how much I care about them and how much I love them. And, and sometimes they don't always see it, but I, I hang on to this, that with time, they will turn around in their life and go, wow, my dad loved me. So what gives you that hope? Because there was a day that it hit me. I look back now at all the things my dad went through and I think, man, as a single dad to get up early, not only pick me up, but I would abuse my dad's kindness and say, dad, can you pick this guy up and this guy up and this guy up? We had four people in that car. My dad became the bus. I don't ever remember saying thank you one time get in the car with my buddies and it was all about my friends we get to the school he drop us off and bye dad that was it no thank yous I never recognized the great lengths to which he went just to help just to be there for me just to show me that my life meant something to him you know I have repeatedly called my dad and apologized to him for being such a rebellious ungrateful son he said, Dad, I want you to know that your love really does mean something to me. 
You know, it would be real helpful today if you would just take a long look at everything Christ did for you and is doing for you. Maybe stop for a moment and say, Lord, I don't know why you're so good to me. I'm such an ungrateful child. But what you put up with and what you go through, what you went through just for me, I want you to know I, I don't fully understand and appreciate how much you love me, but it means something to me. Your love means something to me. You know, I could understand my dad going through all of that stuff if I was a good, obedient son, <laughs> but I wasn't. Oh, trust me there, I wasn't. You know, it must have hit Paul. I'm sure it did. He said, when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us while we were good people trying to make him happy. He died for us when we hated him, when we rebelled against him, when we were completely ungrateful for everything that he's done. In that pitiful condition, he looked down on us, not in anger, but in love, and said, I'm going to do for you what no other being can ever do. I'm going to make a way for you to get back to God. I will pay the ransom for your soul so that you and God can be made whole again. Paul had to have looked at that and thought, when I was at my most unlovable, that's when he loved me most. Now that's the giver, the giver of love. When we look at what he went through and to whom he gave it, he didn't give it to people that loved him. He gave it to people that hated him. Oh man, what a great love. But what about the receiver? We can look at the benefit, at the change that this love makes in the receiver's life and we can thereby see how great that love is. Look at the change it made in the Apostle Paul from persecuting and trying to exterminate Christianity to trying to establish it everywhere his foot stepped. If we can focus just personally on Paul's life, he not only found forgiveness, justification, redemption, and eternal life in what Christ did for him, but he also came to learn this, and please let this reality sink in. Because he is now saved, he was joined to the Lord. What a fantastic truth. You say, Brother Mike, what's the big deal about that? Paul said it like this. I am crucified with Christ. Notice the present tense. I am crucified with Christ. I can't get away from him. He can't get away from me. I am part, this great act of love that he died for me, it is now a part of me. And now that I have received Christ, the old Paul is dead and the new Paul emerges from the grave to walk in newness of life. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, the heart of the gospel, it not only changes your eternity, it changes your here and now because every part of your life can be made right if you will apply the gospel. Paul said, I'm joined to the Lord. I'm crucified with him. I'm buried with him. I'm risen with him. So my old man, the old way of thinking, gone. 
Everything is brand new every single day. That love that Christ manifested to me, it'll never go away. I'm daily reminded of how much he loves me. And he said in verse 14, will you look at it with me? The love of Christ constraineth me. That word constrains, it means to box him in. It, it compelled him. In another place in the Bible, the same word that's translated as constrain here, it's translated as this, I am in a strait betwixt two. In other words, I'm boxed in. I can't get out. Now, instead of thinking of this as a box, can I give you a different metaphor? The arms of Christ have wrapped themselves around Paul, and he can't escape. He says, Paul, I'm going to hold on to you nice and tight all the way until the day the trumpet sounds. And Paul says, I, 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 any way I turn, whether it's the height, the length, the breadth, the depth, anywhere I look, all I can see around me is this love of Christ. So, I know how much it means to me. I know how much it's changed my life. I know how valuable it is to me. How could I possibly stay quiet? How could I not tell somebody else about this great love that has gripped me, that is holding on to me? Paul says, I'm not crazy. I'm loved. I'm so loved, I can't stay quiet. That makes perfect sense to me. Anybody that meets this life-changing love could not possibly stay quiet. Number two on your outline, why are we not crazy? Number one, Christ's love. Number two, Christ's life. His life. Let me explain this. In verse 15, Christ's life. He says, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I, as Paul, I recognize that there was a time in my life I was dead. You say, Pastor, but what you talking about? Were you in a grave? Did we have your funeral? We're talking a spiritual death. I was dead unto God. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 4, alienated from the life of God. God made no sense to me. And when God tried to speak to me, the words sounded like gibberish in my heart and in my head. It just didn't ring right. I was dead in sins, no connection. And then one day somebody showed up with a gospel track and explained to me how much Jesus did, how much he loved me, and said, if you want to have life, sinner, it's a free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They said, if you'd like to have eternal life, you can receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, trusting Him and Him alone. Not the good things you're doing, not the fact that you were baptized or that you go to church, but that you've received the Lord Jesus. He is life. By receiving Him, you will also have that abundant life. Not prosperous, abundant. The life God intended for everyone to have. That is a life of fellowship with Him. The 3rd of August, 1996, I was given that gift of life. I received it. And now, based on what we read in verse 15, it just makes sense. If I'm alive, I didn't give myself this life, did I? I didn't earn this life. 
It's not like I worked hard for it and they gave it to me and I said, God, now go away. Let me, let me use this life as I see fit. I worked for it. This is the reward of my labor. No, it's not. It was a gift. Out of gratitude, I look to the one who gave it and say, sir, how would you like for me to use this great gift you've given me? I owe him a debt of gratitude. He gave me something that I didn't deserve, that I never would have found without him. He gave me the gift of life. Paul said it like this in Romans 8, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We are debtors. I owe him a debt that I'll never be able to fully repay. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, We were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to him. He purchased them. Friends, let's think this through. Let's just, let's just try to be logical about it. If he purchased them and they belong to him, my body and my spirit, then doesn't he have the right to tell me how to use my body and my spirit? Does, does that make sense? I think that makes sense. I, I quoted the verse and I've given it to you on your outline at the bottom here. I'm gonna refer you to it again. I am crucified with Christ. Look at the next part. Nevertheless, I live. Do you see that? Where did he get this life? But he says, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In Philippians, he said, for to me to live is Christ. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live to the best of my natural ability. Is that how the verse goes? Did you realize that's how a lot of Christians approach it? With all their, they have good intentions, but that's not the way it's supposed to be done. Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Notice the connection, who loved me and gave himself for me. Based on point one, he loves me so much, I have to recognize that the gift of life is for him to direct. It's for him to tell me how to use it. He purchased my freedom gave me liberty not so that I can do what I want I am free from sin so that I can serve him without hindrance the book of Ephesians does a great job it tells us that when God saved us he saved us for a purpose he created us in Christ Jesus unto good works remember that part in Ephesians 2 in Ephesians 1 it says that we're chosen in Christ to be holy and without blame before him in love See, God had a plan for every single person after they get saved. This is how it's supposed to be. Good works, holiness, blamelessness. 2 Corinthians 4, can I ask you to look at verse 3 with me? This is part of God's plan. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, notice the little g, that's the devil in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We have a treasure stored up inside of us, yes? How do you find a treasure? You need a treasure map. You need a treasure map. The treasure map is in you. So what is it? It's this light. It's this gospel. Verse 4, the, the glorious gospel of Christ. That's the treasure map. And if we do not go and communicate that gospel to people, then the treasure of the presence of God manifested in the face of Jesus Christ is hid. Verse 3, it is hid to them that are lost. The treasure map is within you. It is the gospel. It must be communicated. It must be shown. This is all part of God's plan to reach the world. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do we believe that? But how shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? This makes sense, right? Logic, reason, this makes sense. How can they call on him if they haven't believed? How shall they believe on him if they haven't heard about him? Doesn't that make sense? You can't believe until you've heard. Well, then how can they hear without a preacher? Do you see how this makes perfect sense? We're not crazy. We look at the facts. We look at how God is operating. We say we are just the vessel, verse 7. We're just the earthen vessel, but we're carrying the most precious treasure there is, the light of the gospel, which produces life and love in those that hear it. We're not crazy. We're not crazy. The world might think we are, but when I look at it through what the Holy Spirit's revealed, this is the only thing that makes sense. One last point, and we're done. Number three, why are we not crazy? Because preaching the gospel to the world, that was Christ's last command. Christ's last command. Number one is love. Number two is life. Number three, his last command command I redirect your attention to chapter 5 in verse 18 chapter 5 in verse 18 and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation verse 19 at the end we have the word of reconciliation and verse 20 we are ambassadors for Christ we are sent out into the world instead of Christ. Do you see that in verse 20? In Christ's stead. Instead of Jesus walking around in a human body telling everybody, repent, come to God. We are sent out in His place. We are His representatives. The very last thing that Jesus told His disciples before He floated back up into heaven he said, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, it's up to you to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all nations and teach them how to be disciples of Christ. That was his last command. He has left us this great privilege of telling other people how to be saved. I don't think it's a surprise to any of you. I, I am the pastor of this church, but it's also correct to say that I am a missionary. I, I think you can tell I'm not from here. You can tell that, right? It's because of my tie. 
hit him. <laughs> the word missionary, it comes from a Latin word, missio, which means to send out. Why is that important? The Greek word, apostelo, means to send out, which is where we get the English word apostle. An apostle and a missionary, you're basically saying the same thing. You're just coming at it from two different languages. Now, let me make one distinction. What, what I'm doing today, what, let's say the, the role I'm serving in this country, I am a missionary. I have been sent out of my country to come to this one. But I am a foreign missionary, if we can be specific. I am a foreign missionary. To be very technical about it, all of us are missionaries. We just may not go as far. We may not have to cross over a sea or an ocean, but all of us have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are all called, we are all sent to take the word of God to someone else. Now, some of us will go into the highways and hedges, into the streets and lanes. Jesus commanded it. Some of us will. Some of us, we will fish for men while we're at school or at work. Some of you will slowly communicate the gospel to the friends and family that are about you. Listen, the method on how you get the gospel to the people around you can change. It doesn't have to be done on a street corner passing out tracks. You might have to sit patiently next to your vile-mouthed co-worker and be the Christian you're supposed to be, living that sanctified life, and let the Holy Spirit work on his heart until after months of patiently waiting, he says, why are you different? And now you have a chance. You understand there's so many different ways. You can visit them in hospitals. You can, you can have coffee after coffee with them until they ask, why are you buying me so much coffee? <laughs> Paul said it very well in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, necessity. He said, I have no glory. When I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. I can't brag. It's not like I made this message up. He says, because necessity is laid upon me. Christ has commanded me to do it. I don't have a choice. I have to do it. It's not crazy to follow the command of your Savior. That's not crazy. I finished this sermon. Well, I, I, I'm going to say I finished this sermon, but actually I'm going to let an eight-year-old boy finish this sermon for me. This eight-year-old boy in the mid-1800s, he was dying of consumption. His name was John Sim, S-I-M. As he lay on his deathbed, they could hear him singing. All the other kids and the other adults, there were many people in this house because John Patton was ministering to so many. They were coming and going, and they could hear this boy singing, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. John Patton writes this, Shortly before his decease, he said to his parents, Please listen to this. I am going soon to be with Jesus, but I sometimes fear that I may not see you there. Why so, my child, said his weeping mother? Because, he answered, 
if you were set upon going to heaven and seeing Jesus there, you would pray about it and sing about it. You would talk about Jesus to others and tell them of that happy meeting with Him in glory. All this my dear Sunday school teacher taught me, and she will meet me there. Now why did not you, my father and mother, tell me all these things about Jesus if you are going to meet Him too? This is very clear, simple, sound logic coming from the mouths of babes and sucklings. This makes perfect sense. It's so easy to grasp that an eight-year-old wrapped his mind around it. Something so important. Why aren't you telling others? Paul said that our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace everywhere you go everywhere you go ready to preach the gospel folks it's not crazy Christ's love his life his last command as far as I can see it's the only logical thing to do now take advantage of every opportunity you have to tell somebody else how they can be saved let's all stand if you would please have our heads bowed and our eyes closed heads bowed and eyes closed as it pertains to the work of missions you understand that what we've talked about this morning is the very heart of it how can we be concerned about souls all over the world if we don't recognize the need in our own lives to be reaching people with the gospel? This is not something that only a few people have been given this responsibility to preach. All of us, to a certain extent, have this privilege. If you're not sure how to communicate the gospel to somebody else, we would be thrilled to help you learn. That, that's one of the responsibilities of the church, is to prepare you to do that. If you yourself never experienced the deep, deep love of Christ, first, before you preach to anybody else, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. You need to experience it for yourself and say, yep, it works, it works, it changed me. I can feel His arms wrapped around me. They can't let me go. I'm boxed in, I'm constrained. I, I, he squeezes so tight, I have to say something. If you've never been saved, would you open your heart today? Say, Lord, I recognize 
what you did for me. I see the great love. Please be my Savior. Please be my life. If you've never done that, even now, right where you're at, whether you're here in the building or at home watching, you can ask Him to come into your heart and save you. Ask Him the best way you know how. Make that commitment. Father, thank you this morning for your help to discuss this subject, this very important subject. Please let it be clear to us, Lord, how meaningful this is, how important this is. And we recognize that others might think us foolish. They might think we're beside ourselves, that we're crazy. And I get that. But Lord, when I look at it through the eyes of the new man, I see no other option. Thank you, Father. It's been a privilege all these years to tell people about your son. Help us, Lord, to, to see the opportunities. Help us uh, to be ready, no matter where we're at or what we're doing, to tell people what you did for them. Father, those that are under conviction this morning, please continue to work in their hearts and patiently bring them to where they need to be. Thank you, Lord, for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.